When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, Next Picture Show listeners. If you enjoy the Next Picture Show, you'll really enjoy getting more Next Picture Show by subscribing to our Patreon. You can get our weekly newsletter for $3 a month and unlock bonus episodes for $5 a month. You also get ad-free versions of every episode of the podcast. We hope you'll come engage with other listeners to talk about what's new, old, and interesting in film. You can find it all at patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. That's patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. It's very difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and how it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Scott Tobias, here with... Keith Phipps. And Genevieve Kosky. Tasha Robinson, our, our co-host, is off uh, getting bedazzled somewhere in the deep south, but uh, we will see her again on a future episode. This week, we almost certainly say goodbye to the summer of 2001, uh, at least as far as studio movies are concerned. We did AI, artificial intelligence, earlier this year in a pairing with After Yang, and today we tackle Moulin Rouge. I, of course, will resist any effort to give Shrek the classic designation, uh, uh, which leaves Pearl Harbor, uh, Evolution, Swordfish, Lara Croft, Tomb Raider, Dr. Doolittle 2, the first Fast and the Furious movie, Cats and Dogs, Jurassic Park 3, America's Sweethearts, and Planet of the Apes. There's also Legally Blonde, which I think we more or less like. Uh, so any arguments from you, uh, Keith or Genevieve, about closing the book on the blockbusters of 2001 after yeah. today? I, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not ready to write off Legally Blonde as an option in, in, in the future. I'm, I'm holding on to that. We, we may do Legally Blonde. <laughs> yeah, I, I did, I did kind of want to separate that one from the, from the rest of the bunch. Keith, is that, is that, that all right with you? That's fine. Yeah. And I will say, I, I remember Dr. Doolittle too, I think has a fairly sensitive vocal performance from, from uh, Albert Brooks as a tiger. I don't know. Uh, I can look it up, but I'm not going to. Yeah. Uh, but that's actually, I mean, I, I've, I wrote something about this on the reveal. That's, that it's not a great summer, although we certainly have found a couple of great movies with at least one in reserve. But uh, yeah. And Jurassic Park 3, I think, is enjoyable, but probably nothing yeah. we need to no. feature on the show. It's fine. I, I mean, I honestly wish there were more. I think we talked about this on the show. Like, if they want to do more stuff like Jurassic Park 3, just like do dinosaurs eating people for 90 minutes or whatever, that's fine. Just you know, keep it tight. Still, amid this dire summer of sequels, remakes, and franchise starters, we also got Baz, and we're getting Baz again in the summer of 2022. Genevieve, what's our pairing for this set of episodes? This week, we're visiting turn-of-the-century Paris, where artists, dancers, and dramatists once thrived in the bohemian paradise of the Moulin Rouge, a cabaret that heralded a more liberated age. 
With Moulin Rouge, Australian director Baz Luhrmann dispenses with the fuddy-duddy conventions of historical drama and instead crafts a jukebox musical about love and creative freedom, with a soundtrack full of recognizable pop hits. Luhrmann's fevered style and irreverent approach to history also figures into his new film Elvis, an Elvis Presley biopic that seeks to remind audiences why he was such a phenomenon. So in this episode, we'll talk about Moulin Rouge and how it captured a pop culture moment. And then next week, we'll bring in Elvis, which revives a king that may be dead, at least for the younger generations. Please stay with us. Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. He entered a world where fantasy is real, where he could be anything he wanted, and where he would discover the most dangerous temptation of all. Come and get me, boys. Diamonds are a girl's best friend. I believe you were expecting me. Yes. Silly, thinking you would fall in love with someone like me. I can't fall in love with anyone and make men believe what they want to believe. Never knew I could feel like this. I believe in truth, freedom, and above all things, love. Like I've never seen the sky. You're gonna be bad for business, I can tell. I am willing to provide the financial resources to make you a star. I require a contract that binds her team to me exclusively. He could destroy everything. I don't care. We have each other. Among a certain subset of film critics, the release of Moulin Rouge was an apocalyptic moment, starting with its premiere at the Cannes Film Festival in France, which felt like returning to the scene of the crime. The most celebrated of all French filmmakers, Jean Renoir, had already made his Moulin Rouge movie, French Can-Can, half a century earlier, and the deft sensuality of his work couldn't be further removed from Baz Luhrmann, whose aggressive montage style struck some as unseemly vulgarization. In The Village Voice, Jay Hoberman called Moulin Rouge, quote, a voracious vacuum cleaner of a movie, hoovering up a hundred years' worth of junk with the same monotonously unmodulated hum. In Slate, David Edelstein said, quote, It's meaningless to criticize Moulin Rouge for being florid, campy, and excessive, since Lerman aspires to make his audience drunk on florid, campy excess. The real problem isn't overload, but emptiness. The audience stays stone-cold sober. Moulin Rouge was a hit with audiences, however, despite falling well outside any formula for what a surefire summer blockbuster might look like. Lerman had successfully cultivated a young audience for Shakespeare five years earlier with his gangland modernization of Romeo and Juliet, so the expectation was that he could do so again with another tragic romance with a hip contemporary flavor. In the lead-up to the film's release, MTV laid the groundwork for the experience with a music video for the cover of Lady Marmalade. Christina Aguilera, Lil' Kim, Maya, and Pink all did the cover in the video, 
along with Missy Elliott, who produced the single. And the sultry choreography was a taste of what Moulin Rouge would be like, even though the video wasn't directed by Lerman himself. But the MTV aesthetic was nonetheless a big part of the film's appeal, and a key source of the hostility directed toward it. Large chunks of Moulin Rouge unfold in sequences rather than traditional scenes, held together by a soundtrack that mixes and matches seemingly incongruous songs, like Smells Like Teen Spirit and the aforementioned Lady Marmalade. Lorman seems to have internalized the way young people can ride a wave of different pop, rock, and hip-hop singles without finding the experience jarring. Edelstein was right to say that Lerman wants the audience drunk on florid, campy excess, and he was willing to experiment radically in film language in order to make that happen. Australian cinema has a tradition of gonzo, go-for-broke entertainment, and Lerman is bringing that energy to Hollywood. At the same time, Moulin Rouge does benefit from certain conventional hooks, like the star charisma of two A-list actors, and a swooning, tragic love story as old as, well, Romeo and Juliet. Ewan McGregor stars as Christian, a penniless writer who's drawn to the bohemian splendor of the Moulin Rouge like a moth to flame. Soon after his arrival, he teams up with a troupe led by Toulouse-Lautrec, played by John Leguizamo, that's working on a play called Spectacular Spectacular. They want their star attraction to be the star attraction at the Moulin Rouge. Her name is Satine, aka the Sparkling Diamond, a courtesan played by Nicole Kidman. The ringmaster of the Moulin Rouge, Harold Ziedler, played by Jim Broadbent, wants Spectacular Spectacular to launch a brand new theater, but he needs money to make it happen. For that, Ziedler turns to the Duke, played by Richard Broxburg, who agrees to bankroll the production with one major string attached. He's infatuated with Satine and wants her included in the deal. Lots of romantic complications follow once Christian and Satine fall in love and carry out their affair in secret and Satine starts coughing blood into a handkerchief in the first reel, so you know she'll be in trouble by the last. Lerman milks this love triangle for physical comedy and farce, as Christian and Satine have to improvise to cover their relationship. And he also expresses their love with full visual and audio splendor, drawing on recognizable hits like Elton John's Your Song, Wings' Silly Love Songs, and David Bowie's Heroes, while the moon smiles and confetti rains down from the sky. Moulin Rouge was an overwhelming cinematic experience in 2001. That's something its fans and detractors can agree on. You'll see how we stand on it after the break. I mean, the show will be a magnificent, opulent, tremendous, stupendous, gargantuan begazzlement, a sensual ravishment. It will be... Spectacular! Spectacular! No words in the vernacular can describe this great event. You'll be dumb with wonderment. Returns are fixed at 10%. You must agree that's excellent. And on top of your fee, you'll be involved So flashback, if you can, to the summer of uh, 2001, did Moulin Rouge feel like a watershed moment to you when it came out? Can you remember how you reacted to it? Because for me, you know, and again, my sort of cinephile friends, it was a serious lightning rod. (laughs) I kind of had the same experience watching it this time as I had it the first time. I'll I'll say right ahead, right, you know, up top, I I, I like this movie a lot, but 
there are moments when I'm starting, you know, watching the beginning of it, uh, all the sort of the Looney Tunes stuff with the acting company. It's like, is this movie actually awful? And then like the <laughs> next scene, I'm like, is this movie actually the best movie I've ever seen? <laughs> it's just kind of all over the place. I, I do really love like the first Moulin Rouge scene so, so mm-hmm. much. And I think ultimately I, I land somewhere in the middle, closer, closer to the top. I do like this film quite a bit. It is out of, you know, it's completely out of control in many ways, but I think it's the, the, you know, a, a learned filmography, not to get ahead too much. I, I This and Romeo and Juliet are, are by far my favorites. And I think they're the two places where his sense and emotional extremes make sense for the material more than any other subsequent thing he's done, or even strictly ballroom for that, for that matter. But, uh, you know, when it works, it works. I think, I think it works here. I was really hesitant to come back to Moulin Rouge because while I can't really speak to uh, my reaction in 2001 from like a cinephile perspective, I wasn't really hanging out with a lot of cinephiles at, at, at that point. And I actually don't even remember seeing this in the theater. I'm sure I did because I really loved uh, Romeo and Juliet as a, as a teenager. And I'm sure I would have been prompted to do so. Plus, I watched TRL all the time. So I'm sure I knew the mm-hmm. song. Like I, I know I saw this in the theater, but my associations with it are not that theatrical release. They're the fall in year after when it was on DVD and which happened to be my freshman year in college. And when I had a Columbia House subscription and that I got DVDs from, and you better believe Moulin Rouge was one of the first DVDs I had in college when we had movie nights. And this was before streaming. We had to, you know, watch what we had and we watched Moulin Rouge a lot, a lot, a lot. Like I I realized uh, watching again this time, like I still have every vocal run from Come What May, like internalized like i can <laughs> sing them all i won't because i'm not that good of a singer but i know them all so like this movie is like in my blood to a certain extent but i haven't rewatched it in probably 15 years and in that time have become much more aware of some people's feelings about this movie <laughs> and have also you know maybe arguably developed a bit in my own uh tastes so i was i was afraid to come back to moulin rouge a little bit and discover that you know those parts that keith is talking about you know maybe this is an awful movie, maybe that would, you know, outweigh everything for me. But nope, I still love this movie. I maybe love it even more. Uh, Now, I feel like it is remarkable, like how modern this still feels like I feel like this predicted where we are in entertainment in a lot of ways now, like, the fragmentation and the mashup and the self-reflexiveness. Like, I think you could draw kind of a straight line from Elephant Love Medley to the mid-aughts mashup culture to like TikTok songs today, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, Boz knew what he was doing. And I think that this movie plays really well today. And like, yeah, I, I get what you're saying, Keith, like that Looney Tunes, like farcical slapstick hills are alive sequence like it's weird it's it's a really weird way to to start a movie especially like on the heels of this very tragic sad framing device when we're being told that this is a a, a tragic love story shades of romeo and juliet but that first moulin rouge scene like i cried i like i've talked before about how i get spectacle tears uh <laughs> and like that scene is like the epitome of what will induce spectacle tears in me i just <laughs> just like i was so happy to be back in that in that space and yeah i mean i get 
why people resist this movie. Um, my husband was someone who resisted this movie for a long time, but you know what? He loved it too. So, <laughs> so maybe you just need he to get past just, your hangups. <laughs> he resisted just straight, straight up, just seeing it. Period. Is that yeah. what I? Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think you're. I think you hit on something when when, when you talk about how Baz. I think we can call him Baz here. You don't need to see Lerman. <laughs> yeah. How Baz sort of saw the future a little bit. And I feel like I feel like that that was part of the resentment towards the movie. It was like, mm-hmm. okay, I see the future. I don't like it. <laughs> I mean, in, in, in a way, it's, you know, uh, the style of the film is not that dissimilar to a Michael Bay, whose films I genuinely dislike and still dislike. But uh, in, in that it's really about, you know, v- montage. It's about visceral impact. It's not necessarily about using... The, you know, the, the, the traditional filmmaking tools or t- traditional filmmaking style where you're kind of establishing space and you're, you know, I mean, it, it really has to do with a, a certain kind of feel, as I said in the keynote, kind of directing in, in sequences oftentimes rather than scenes. And even the scenes themselves, when we get them, uh, can be, you know, quite manic and full of little curlicues and w- weird bits of style in, the, in themselves. So, you know, so I think it's a matter of, of how you, can just process this kind of intense input i had I, but though all the, all of that said i reacted to this film now as i kind of did in 2001 and i think it's pretty similar to keith i wanted to run away uh during that <laughs> leg was when john leguizamo makes his appearance and i and I, I really hate that performance and it, I, I there's no part i i just i can't get on board with any of it mm-hmm. so so any of the stuff involving to lose the trek in that troop you know could just i would love to just scuttle all of it because it just it does <laughs> not work for me and that weird little lisp thing he does is not funny and it just it, it hurts pain it's painful to watch and yet you know, you do get past it and, and you've got a lot of movie left to savor and, you know, you can't, can't help but be swept up in it. I mean, it's a movie that cleverly sort of harnesses the power of the of the sort of pop music that it's channeling, you know, in, in this relationship between Christian Satine. But then, but then also that first sequence that we're talking about, that introduction to the, to the Moulin Rouge the incorporation of those two songs of smells like teen spirit and and lady marmalade i mean it's it's kind of irresistible it all comes together it's almost like discovering a new food you know like when you put two ingredients together it's like that's not going to go together don't don't (laughs) don't even try to put that stuff together and then you put it together it's like this you've invented some sort of fusion food you're i give you three michelin stars for that so it's (laughs) like it's like that kind of uh, experience um to watch uh that that uh first sequence and it also kind of gives you your first introduction to Jim Broadbent as uh, as Ziegler, and that uh, mm. and that is that that and Nicole Kidman's performance. Those are my two favorite performances in the movie. I think he's just so terrific, so diabolical and yet lovable. And the comedy that we get from him is again so much uh, stronger than what we we get than what we get from uh, uh, from Lake Wasamo and his his uh, you know more more overtly comic bunch. I don't hate Leguizamo in this movie because I, I just generally like Leguizamo, but he can go a little big, and certainly he's not holding back here. But it seems to, as much as I, you know, also cringe at those opening moments, I, I, I it does seem to fit the style of it as well. Also, I mean, I'm also kind I of audacity points too. Sorry yeah. to interrupt, but but like when as, as soon as as soon as you realize they're doing the sound of music, it's like wait what's happening here (laughs) you know like even like you kind of like get hints of what's gonna happen with the music uh before with the uh nature boy uh opening but like 
when it's just full on doing sound of music in Fin de Sacal, Paris, like it's audacious, you know, and I think it, it primes you for what is about to happen with that Moulin Rouge can can sequence. I also, and this is outside the frame of the film, so Scott, cover your ears, but I also find it kind of poignant knowing that Lautrec dies the next year. I mean, this is you know not in any way addressed in the film, but but like if you bring a little, little bit of extra into it, I, th- I think that, that uh, casts it in a different light too. I mean, I find this film weirdly poignant for ways be- reasons beyond the tragic love story. Uh, just the idea, of, you know, at the end of, or the beginning of one century, you know, reflecting on the on uh, it's filled with with all the songs of the century to come from these people who are kind of kind of you know. Forging out, you know, you know, doing the groundwork for what that century is going to look like, and I really liked your point, Genevieve, about about it being forward looking as well. So I, th- I feel like it's kind of can be a focal point for a couple of different centuries worth of, uh, of pop music, ultimately, in, in some ways. Is there some kind of incongruity between you know the bohemian ideals that are kind of expressed by the in the film and expressed by the characters, and say something from the Sound of Music? <laughs> For example, or I mean, or some of these other songs that are 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 used are not exactly you know uh, counterculture classics or anything like that. No, but I, I think it's, it is kind of it's an omnivorous approach to to popular mm-hmm. music, and I and I don't think I think that's part of what makes it work. You know, sound of music. You know, next to you know, well, more specifically, Lady Marmalade next to smells, smells like Teen Spirit. Those songs, like you said, don't go together. Yet now they go together, and and I I, I think if it were to narrow it in some way, it would necessarily be as interesting a film. And I think it's also you know worth considering that we're only hearing lines and snippets of these songs. You know, there there's very few songs. I don't know if there are any pop music songs that we hear beginning to end more than just like a few lines of maybe your song uh, is, mm-hmm. is, is the, uh, the big yeah. exception there. But, you know, for the most part, we're just getting these decontextualized kind of iconic lyrics, you know, that are have become timeless uh, and are being used in a way that highlights their timelessness and their kind of lack of specificity when you take them out of the context in which they were recorded. Like these are, you know, big, broad ideas about love, truth, beauty, and shoot, what's the last one? Freedom. Freedom, of course. Thank you. So, like, I think it's less about, you know, reminding you of, you know, who originally performed these songs and what they were about and the context in which these songs were made, and more just like kind of triggering that piece of your brain that just knows them on like a a bone deep level. And these lyrics that I, I think like on a lyrical level, like the lyrics that are chosen, they all align with what the movie is trying to do. In the context of the movie, you know, these are characters who are, you know, you know when, when Christian starts singing or even speaking lyrics from, from you know, rec- you know what, are, what to us are recognizable pop songs, they're new to Satine, right? In order to get that. Mm-hmm. But, but so there's an interesting thing to, in the sense that like the power for, for us as, as viewers is that these songs are songs we've heard many times before, this incredibly mm-hmm. popular songs and they, and they, and they have very strong associative qualities but of course then we're watching them being presented to her as new this sort of jumble and i i, I find that I, I don't know if that i don't know if there's anything to that or not <laughs> 
Well, they're being presented as poetry, not as pop songs, you know. Yeah. And and again, it's really honed in on the lyrics rather like the lyrics specifically rather than the whole of the song, you know. It is it is a very sort of cherry-picking approach to musical history, of, of course, but fine. You know, like I think that is the film's project and and yeah. it's it doesn't bother me. And I, I mean, I, th- I I do think again, you know, talk about the way this film sort of anticipates a lot of things to come. I mean, of course, it's not you know just the aesthetics of it, but but I think I think the way that we experience music now is so much anticipated by this movie in a way that it wa- that wasn't so clear to us in two thousand one when we were you know still you know buying we were buying records and CDs and listening to full mm-hmm. albums and and um you know and I, and I think I think there's a the way that younger people are kind of getting their musical education now is a so much more piecemeal so much more singles driven and you know you can kind of handle these uh, you can handle a mix like this you can handle the nirvana next to patty labelle or whatever it it all works so kind of credit this movie for kind of recognizing that it's all kind of one big sort of pop machine just out of curiosity are either of you familiar with the uh musical the stage musical of moulin rouge no, did you no. see it? No. What, what do I, they do with it? I mean, I, I haven't seen it live. I, I would like to, and I would very much like to hear from any of our, our listeners who have seen it. But I have listened to some of the of the cast recording and to kind of what we're talking about. I wanted to just note that the Elephant Love Medley, uh, which is what the mashup of silly love songs that they sing in The Elephant is, is called. The Broadway musical version of that has maybe half a dozen more songs mm. in it, including, let's see, Don't Speak, I Love You Always For forever love hurts love is a battlefield ah. uh, such great heights torn take on me <laughs> like, oh my God. Like it's, it's, it takes a, an even an even broader approach to sort of inclusivity the uh, musical inclusivity there and of course i've only watched or i've only heard the song in a vacuum and i'm sure it probably plays great on stage in the house but uh, i don't really like it <laughs> with all those <laughs> you know like it feels like it is uh maybe pushing it a little too far so i i feel like maybe that's kind of me relating to how some people felt maybe in in 2001 hearing that <laughs> for the first time like like it's like whoa yeah settle down this is too much <laughs> yeah well you're right yeah please it doesn't have it, it's not it doesn't have the like restrained uh, uh lerman approach yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a it's a little it's a little out of control but i can see that i mean because well and also i think it it's proportionally fine i mean i don't think uh, you know uh, you know when this movie works it really really works and that's a really fine sequence and and uh i i didn't i didn't experience thinking thinking oh they've they haven't they've left out a bunch of other songs with love in them <laughs> about, they left out a bunch of other love songs that i would have loved i would have liked to have heard i don't think that i may i, mean, I guess i would have wanted love as a battlefield i, I have a i have a soft spot for that one but it's fine as as is but i guess if you're gonna have if you're gonna expand this into a broadway show uh that's gonna presumably you know even be more of a musical than this is then you're gonna have to have that some of that stuff in there sure to parallel this should the broadway show shouldn't it open with like a movie screen or something (laughs) instead of theater curtains or or yeah i I mean it it very well might but to just kind of briefly note like this point in 
Baz Luhrmann's like history. Did this being called like the Red Curtain trilogy come across? Like, I, I don't know if that's like just how they were marketing it later. as a DVD. Th- yeah. Yeah, I, I think that was that was a later uh, idea because I don't think Strictly Ballroom really fits in with Romeo and Juliet and Moulin Rouge as 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 well as, uh, I mean, but, but you know you you got to sell those DVDs. I guess the way that Lerman explained it is that it's like each of the three films is dedicated to a different performing art, uh, uh, mm. dance in Strictly Ballroom, poetry and language in uh, Romeo and Juliet, and musical performance here all right um, I'll so buy it. Like, this, this it, wasn't it, like a peewee herman i meant to do that type of moment like I mean, it, like it, where, it, where it, he it, just like got to the third and it's like wait a minute all the, the i can just tie all this stuff together at all i mean it, it very well might be that but i think like the fact that he thought of it that way kind of just speaks to what interests Lerman as a film. Like there's not a thematic connection necessarily between these these movies. Uh it's you know, style I haven't I actually haven't seen Strictly Ballroom. I, it's not quite as flashy stylistically, right? Right. Yeah. But it's more, I guess, just like idea or concept driven, you know? Obviously there's no like narrative connection between any of them. I predict that you will really like Strictly Ballroom by the way. I, I, yeah, I think I'm <laughs> I'm definitely going to revisit Romeo and Juliet because Steve hasn't seen that and okay. has expressed an interest in it. So obviously, I'm going to sure. uh, accommodate that. But so uh, that's, yeah, another, that's another one where it was kind of a fight or flight, uh, mm-hmm. you know, opening for me where it's like, oh boy. Here, Not if I, you were a 15 year old who really liked Leonardo DiCaprio. <laughs> like right away, like like the very beginning of the movie. I just like I think it begins with a lot of like of the of a lot of like gang violence-y stuff, and it doesn't really get to that like super soft. Romeo you know like that relationship I get you know but mm-hmm. but uh I just I had the it, I, I just I, again I haven't seen it since it came out but I just I recall the beginning of the movie being off-putting in the same way that the beginning of uh Moulin Rouge is off-putting and then you just kind of get you know won over by it eventually or worn down or whatever it is that <laughs> whatever it does I mean it, think about it, him as like it just seems like he has a certain kind of instinct in terms of the way he likes to make movies and his judgment is can be kind of questionable at times. There's just so there's kind of a wildness to all of his work and, and uh, almost a lack of taste, um, sort of. You know, and I don't mean again, I, I don't mean it, it, it to be terribly insulting. Restraint, maybe. What I say? But is it, when but I say like, you're ugly, I don't mean ugly, ugly. I mean <laughs> well, you it's know. restraint. What I mean, like, but I mean, like. I don't even think it's that though, because because I like there's stuff of his work that I like. I mean, I like when he's when he's unrestrained. I just but but it also goes along with unrestrained stuff I don't like. <laughs> Which is like you know, and, and so there's there's inevitably stuff from all of his movies that I wish were you know gone, uh, not there, um, or, or s- sequences that you know make me roll my eyes or want to like move forward uh and then others where i'm just utterly enchanted and there's no way of you know he just doesn't have that ability to kind of well i guess appeal to my specific taste <laughs> i don't know <laughs> like, to, like to just weed out you know take the bad stuff out Baz, um and put the keep the good stuff anyway uh so one question that i did have you know because there are so many anachronisms you know infused into moulin rouge what about Wait, the actual what, what, time what, what, anachronisms 
<laughs> well, yes. Uh, some, so, 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 okay. There are some things that hey, you know, you're right. Some, some things we recognize from today that are in uh, 1900 Paris. So they're infused in the Moulin Rouge um, into the film quite a bit. Uh, what about the actual time and place remains? What What is interesting to Lerman about the actual Moulin Rouge and and what it what it represents and and you know what is it? What about this time and place? Do you feel like he was trying to kind of evoke here? I mean, I think it, the anachronisms are what evoke <laughs> what's interesting to him about it. Like to go back to the that uh, first Moulin Rouge sequence that we've already talked about a bunch. Like you know, just setting aside the the music cues of it all. Like just on a filmmaking level, like it is a chaotic sequence. Like the sound mix is all over the place. The the visuals are are swirling, and it's just uh, you know you don't really have a sense of grounding. You know, it's just like flying through this this moment, um, and it's loud and it's colorful and it's debaucherous and i think like you know with historical films in particular we kind of grown accustomed to like compartmentalizing them as like not like our modern life you know and different from our modern experience but that Moulin Rouge scene, like that feels like being in a club. That feels like being on a dance floor. It feels like being in a debaucherous setting. And I and I think that moment in time, that that Bohemian moment is something that he's trying to make us feel on a modern scale, you know, and and not necessarily on a like an intellectual level. He wants us to feel what it felt like to be in that moment. And that comes through in the anachronisms, which like the music and the filmmaking style and the sort of modern performances we see. And I, I think it really works. Like, I think like it just, it's not really interested in the the, the facts of history, which I'm sure we will get into with 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 Elvis as well, but the feeling of history, mm. and I think it captures that really well. Yeah, there's this idealized version of Bohemian Paris, but I think it's interesting that central to the film is this conflict between commercialism and art and, and you know, the haves and the have-nots, but also like very specifically this idea to, you know, you know the, the obviously the Duke has other designs, but he's also a meddling film executive in some ways demanding <laughs> the film reflect what he wants. And uh, he's the one putting up the money. So you have to, you have to deal with it too. Uh, I mean, it, it's not just an idealized uh, uh, Bohemia. It's, 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 it's got some, uh, some, some not pleasant parts to it as well. Can I say my uh, share one of my favorite things about the Duke, which is that not only does he live in a gothic tower, but he calls it my gothic tower. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I feel like that just like really kind of encapsulates what this this movie is doing as far as its uh, self reflexiveness. Yeah, well, one thing about that, one small thing, if we're talking about the historic Moulin Rouge, is the clientele. I mean, it, you know it, that that you have. Um, one kind of unforgettable part of that opening is the way you have these sort of gentlemen who have mm -hmm. the who have the money to be at this club and they're dressed the way they're dressed. The way the they 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 kind of recite the lyric, it almost has this sort of Pink Floyd, the Wall type quality to it. Here we are now, entertain mm -hmm. us. It's all this kind of like it, it's all there's almost something kind of almost disturbing. Quality, and they're like encroaching like a phalanx phalanx i can never say that right yeah <laughs> uh the way they're like encroaching on the camera it's yeah it's yeah, sinister it, and i think it's supposed to be it is it is and it is and it is a tension that is that is keith notes is key to the movie about art and commerce and and what 
these characters want to do and want to express and what uh the market demands you know uh you know how say someone like satine may view herself as a performer and in, in, in the way you know these gentlemen be, may, may be viewing her and and um i think that's kind of an, an important element of the film a, as well you know and richard roxburgh of course is a really big part of that and a lot of actors are a really big part of that so i i want to really dig into the performances in this movie because they're because they're all uh, so interesting uh why don't we do that after the break So lots of fine performances in this movie, as uh, you, you mentioned with, you know, we can talk, we can agree to disagree a little bit on Leguizamo. I don't know, there's a spectrum here on that, but I want to start with the lead performances. What, what did you think of Ewan McGregor and Nicole Kidman both uh, uh, together and apart in this film? I think there's just a stretch from Nicole Kidman could just do no wrong, basically. Mm -hmm. I mean, just like late 90s, early 2000s is just, I'm I'm, going to call it the actual run here. You know, from from Eyes Wide Shut, Moulin Rouge, The Others, which I just rewatched, I mean, mm-hmm. that's, that's three great ones in a row. Eh, birthday Girl, well, the hours and right. Well, okay, it's, it's a good, but it's, it's a really good stretch. And, and uh, you know, not, not all those ones immediately after Go that back stretch. a little bit before you get to, to, to Die For. I guess a 95 would be not To Die For. But, yeah, yes. and The Portrait of a Lady is, is a film I need to revisit. Oh, yeah, she's good. Uh, you know, yeah. I didn't really care for the adaptation at the time, but perhaps now I, I would. So, but yeah, no, I mean, she she was just kind of in a, in a zone there uh, for a little while. It's not like she's bad now, but just this is just a, a particularly high point in her career, I think. And it's a role that requires just so much flexibility. Like, again, to go back to the elephant scene uh, when, the, you know, the first sort of mistaken identity when she's supposed to be meeting with the Duke and it. Christian, and then there's all this, you know, kind of farce uh, stuff that happens, but then, you know, it turns into this swooning love moment, you know, a, a few moments later. It's, it's like kind of hard to track, like, where that scene ends and begins. I guess it's to Scott's mm-hmm. point about it being more sequences, <laughs> but like, Satine, like, just has to do so many different types of kind of performing and a little bit of earnestness in there. Whereas Christian, who I still like, I I really love this performance from Ewan McGregor, but Christian as a character is just is a lot more straightforwardly earnest throughout the whole film. Like there's not, he's not working on sort of these levels of like, performance within a performance, sometimes within another performance that, that Satine uh, has to, or Nicole Kidman has to as, as Satine. So I think it's like maybe a little more impressive just on a craft level, but I really love Ewan McGregor's voice in, 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 in the songs here more, more than Nicole Kidman's, which I don't have a problem with. Um, it's just like, you know, not my favorite, but Christian as a character is like someone who should annoy me. And maybe he does a little bit, but I think uh, McGregor is just sort of floppy haired charisma at this uh, point really uh, saves that character. Yeah, he he is good, and that the voice is is good, and there's a, there's an earnestness, uh, and also kind of a, a slight playfulness to that to the performance that makes it work. Uh, but and it I is, guess at the end he does have some like real like rage and sorrow too. You know, it's not that he has like only one emotional register. It's more just that like he doesn't have to flip back and forth between yeah, them I mean, as much. The pro- problem is like is 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 that Kidman is just unbelievably good in this movie. Uh, I, yeah, I just. You know, the, just the, as Marilyn Monroe squeals alone, like yeah. I mean, it's just kind of oh, perfectly. God, cap- 
<laughs> those are great. how those <laughs> you are, know? yeah i mean that's the thing it's like you know as should have been said i mean there's she has to do so much in that s- sequence uh where we first are in the whatever elephant yeah because because she is performing for for both of these gentlemen first for christian and then for the duke and then she is responding she has to react to christian who who is a much more disarming you know an intriguing person than she believes because of course she's uh thinks that he's someone else and then she has to engage in comic business and and i think that kidman is so good at that like that like she's really funny and i think there's Mm -hmm. i think i I think that 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 kind of physical comedy i mean it's so it's it's broad you know it's something that that you could certainly fail at and look absolutely ridiculous in in doing it but she doesn't she's really deaf and uh the the movie needs the movie needs that and it's it's and i think we we end up caring for her more because of it because you know otherwise the reasons that we have to care for are already just written into the script which is that she has she's dying of consumption and she's this sort of you know tragic heroine uh here we can see this other side to her this the this something a little a little livelier her she has this ability to improvise she has the ability to cut to be you know an artist in the same way that everybody else is and and um that's all in, in kidman's performance so i think i think it's a real you know that scene alone just a, a real masterpiece of acting there well and then jim broadbent enters the, yes. the, the the sequence too in it uh and then we get the whole like them pitching spectacular spectacular which is a a fun little sequence uh, in in itself but yeah i think like broadbent is the other sort of leg of of this of of the tripod uh, holding up yes this 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 film on on a performance level and like he plays it in such a way that you never really read zidler as a villain which he absolutely is, <laughs> you know, at least like in... He's a survivor, yeah. though, more than sure, a villain. Yeah, I mean, I mean, he's a more... I, 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 maybe villain is, is too strong a, a word, especially when we have the Duke in the mix. But he he's not a... You know, he doesn't necessarily have Satine's best interests in in mind you know and he's a creature of his of his environment yes yes but you absolutely see why satine and everyone else in the moulin rouge is like so so attached to him you know like he's just a he fills up a room uh as both a character and an actor best jim broadbent line reading is is it everything's going (laughs) so well or or is it when he (laughs) when he is explaining to the duke the the lyrics to the to the madonna song like a virgin (laughs) Uh, (laughs) that like a virgin sequence i had kind of forgotten about it like i like i remembered the song was in there but i forgot how bizarre it is (laughs) And again, like sinister and frightening more than you necessarily realize at first from how, you know, silly it seems, which again is kind of what Broadbent's whole thing is. Um, But also um, like Richard Roxburgh is the Duke, like obviously doing a much more mustache twirling. Does he literally twirl his mustache at any point? I feel like... (laughs) He must. he must, right? He must. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But but like, there's elements of silliness there too. Like when he's he's a little bit funny, like that, <laughs> that thing he does. Like mm-hmm. there, you know, like there's a definite like willingness to be silly in these performances that are not like silly characters. Well, you get to lean into it a little bit. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, that, that's that's what the pleasure of Roxburgh's performance too, which I which I also. 
uh, love is just like, okay, I am the bad guy. I'm the Duke, you know? (laughs) um, So let me just really lay into these lines and and give them a certain kind of comic flavor and, uh, and, uh, and and just make myself the mustache twirling villain. Don't, Mm -hmm. don't even try to make it more subtle than that because I don't think it, I don't think it works otherwise. I, I think if you, I think if you really play a role like that, straight then it becomes he becomes you know sinister in a very dark and and disturbing way that's kind of out that that kind of doesn't really fit the tone of the movie i haven't seen every film in the jim broad broadbent filmography but has he ever really had a chance to go anywhere near here again or or even before up to up to this point Maybe a little bit is Slughorn in the Harry Potter movies, but yeah, it's not not nearly on this scale, you know. Yeah, but like the introduction of that character, anyway. Uh, yeah, I wouldn't necessarily say that he hasn't. I mean, I mean, in a way that, in a way, you know, even his Mike Lee work. I mean, Mike Lee doesn't necessarily Mike Lee can play his films fairly big too i mean big in a much different way than baz lerman but jim broadbent has has been a you know is is not the sort of actor who who is sort of tucked into the woodwork he's he's somebody who you know has a real presence so you know whether 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 Mm -hmm. that presence is quite as outrageous as is this one i don't know but i mean like you're talking about how many actors even get the opportunity to do this kind of work? This is a, it's a Baz Luhrmann film, you know. I mean, like, there's not a Fair lot enough. of, you know. I mean, I think we're probably going to get to that when we get to Tom Hanks and Elvis. It's just like, you know, you kind of are able to go to places that that you you're not often able to go in in other directors' work. Just before we leave performances, I just want to note a couple of the, I guess, company members beyond. Uh, John Leguizamo, specifically Jacek Komen as the unconscious Argentinian and Caroline mm. O'Connor as Nini, um, specifically for the Roxanne Tango sequence. Although, yeah. Nini, although Nini also has a, a great moment when she uh, is talking about the ending to the Duke, like, you know, tipping him off to, mm. to what's happening. That's a, a good moment for her. But that tango sequence is an, another one I just, I love. And it's primarily two two background characters. I mean, obviously, uh, Christian sings during it, but sort of the the reveal of what this this moment is, which it, it takes a minute for you for you to realize that they're doing Roxanne. I guess that's another song that's kind of sung more or less in its entirety, or it's not just a snippet anyway. But like when when the Roxanne sequence started, when it's still just like the tango and the Argentinian is like speaking, um, before he lays out the first rocks hand, I, I was just like, I was like watching Steve. I'm like, I can't wait for him to see what this is going to be. Like, I was just like, like you know, had my my fingers together. <laughs> That's just a, a fun one, and it's them. You know, they're they're the ones who pull it off. Yeah, uh, yeah. I, I I'm glad that you mentioned that one. I, I I can't remember what is the motive that she has for spilling the beans to the Duke. Why does she Why does she do that? Yeah, I thought about that a little. And like, I guess one of the things that struck me on this watch is like, you know, we're kind of presented with the players of the Moulin Rouge as like this sort of community, this bohemian community, you know, but there actually doesn't seem to be a whole lot of like love or affection between them, at least not from, from Nini. Um, and I think, but I think what it probably comes down to just on a character motivation levels level is like, she sees what is happening with Satine and Christian and 
is pragmatic and realizes that like this could ruin everything for not just them but her and everyone else at the moulin rouge and she's pissed and, yeah. and rightfully so they're they're being a couple a couple of idiots in love you know but I don't, I don't think it's you know pure malice yeah i guess it's maybe a little strange because the thing to do would just be hiding you know not revealing that information to the dude i think it would be to just to kind of keep covering up for this uh, secret relationship but nevertheless i don't want to get just i don't want to get sidetracked by that but because i do really um i like the the roxanne sequence quite a bit also because it kind of gives you just a different mood a uh, different tone uh you know a, a presentation of that song that you you don't expect you know, because you know it, it, which is you know again uh, to the film's credit i mean it, you know some of some of those some of those kind of later you know musical sequence the, the other one being like the, sh- the show must go on you know they they have a different tone than, than than at the beginning i think things become heavier and more consequential toward the end as the, as as so much is on on the line and and uh the movie is kind of able to you know shape shift accordingly and and also you know g- give you um you know, new interpretations of these songs that sort of match, you know, the the tone that the film's trying to hit. It gets it right too. I mean, I, I feel like this is uh this is you know, I kind of you know I don't know how big we want to get with it in terms of Lerman's career, but I feel like this is a sweet such a sweet spot for him in terms of the material matching the story you know, type of type of film he likes to to make. I mean, for me, there are moments in this movie that. I, you know, I, I watching this like this is this could only happen in a movie when a film's doing something that, that really can only make sense in that medium. Uh, the, it, it's halfway there to winning me over anyway. And I, and I think he really is c- kind of locked into to, to, to doing some some, you know, to to, pu- to pushing things in, in, in this film. And maybe people weren't quite in the mood for where he was always pushing them or maybe he pushed too far and pushing the wrong directions at times. But, but yeah, I'm, I'm, str- I'm left with a lot of admiration for just for the audaciousness of this film. And he, he does it from the start. I mean, he can't, he can't even let the, let the, let the 20th century Fox fanfare to p- play out without, mm-hmm. you know, messing with it a little bit. I mean, it, there's an, there's an overture. It's a, it's a fast overture, you know, <laughs> but if he had fully brought that. back the overture, I would, you know, <laughs> this would be complete, you know, masterpiece for me. I just that would, that would have been bring back overtures and intermissions and things like that. I would, I would love that. I, I think also it's a good place for him to work in terms of where the effects are too, because the digital effects in this aren't totally convincing. They, 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 they you know, if, if they were a little uh, slicker, I don't think it would work nearly as well. I, I think that sort of uh, element of artifice, even down, you know, when it comes to the special effects, is is kind of key to how the film works in some ways. So, what do you, what issue do you have with them? Like the blurriness of? Oh, I have no them? issue with it. No, no, no. I'm just, I'm just saying that they're they're not entirely smooth. They're not right, entirely convincing. Yeah, it's a little janky at times, but I think that I think that works for you know. I don't know if it was intentional or the limitations of the effects in 2001, but it is uh, you know the, the the fact that they the the, the rough edges aren't uh shorn off kind of gives it even like even at its most digital kind of gives a kind of handmade quality this film i think if you turn the motion smoothing on on your tv it should, <laughs> should straighten all of that out i don't uh, it's not a problem for me when i watch it my tv just corrects all that can, stuff can you send me instructions on how to to turn motion smoothing on scott i could i could really use that uh yeah whatever weird thing it says you turn on instead of off uh as you did when you <laughs> when you uh purchased the thing and had to correct it so yeah and i, th- I think you're right one thing i was would say too 
with regard to the you know kind of historical elements of the movie is that i don't think anyone cares right <laughs> i mean like hmm. like how how you know you can just you don't have to give a you know a credible history of the Mulan Rouge you, you can only you really just have to I think the idea you just have to engage with the idea of it like there's just certain elements of that place and whatever it represents and what it looked like what it what it was kind of aesthetically and like you know the kind of the whole Eiffel Tower thing like it was all <laughs> like you could kind of just pick what you want throw the rest away and no one is going to raise a fuss you know which is you know not the case with a certain uh, film that he made it <laughs> in the year 2022. Um, so I guess before we wrap up, I just, I, I wanted to ask about the film's legacy because it was a really kind of an unusual movie to see at the start of a summer, uh, you know, a movie that Fox took a gamble on, put it right in the sweet, you know, right at the beginning of, of, of June and uh, was not a, sequel or a reboot or anything like that and it wasn't like all those other crappy (laughs) summer movies that i had mentioned uh in the in the opening i I guess what do you make of it of its legacy and about did you see do you see it as kind of anomalous or 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 do you see it as influential on a lot of work that sort of has has come about since i I think like it's too idiosyncratic to be like super influential on like a filmmaking level, you know, like, I don't know that there are a lot of, you know, up and coming directors who are like, emulating Baz Luhrmann, just because like, why would you even try? Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, but I do think like, to kind of go back to the the point I made at, at the beginning about, you know, predicting so much of how we would consume culture and, and music, like, I think it's, influential on a broad pop cultural level specifically. And I think, you know, the fact that we did in 2018 get a a, a new Broadway musical that won a buttload of Tonys, you know, and that people loved, you know, kind of speaks to their there still being an audience for the story and this musical approach, even divorced from the filmmaking of Moulin Rouge. Yeah, and I, I mean, I think it kind of does sort of fit into you know, a broader movement to where people would accept a different way of making movies, a different way movies were being made, to where, you know, the editing in particular, you know, is there f- not necessarily to build suspense or establish time, you know, establish spatial relationships or these other things. It's really just about combining images in a way that they have an emotional effect which is which is kind of a more of a, a of a music video thing than a necessarily something you you would expect from from a full-length feature film i mean it also and sorry just real quick to uh, it also like anticipated shuffle culture to, to a, a certain extent you know like the, <laughs> yeah. this was this was basically like right before the ipod and right before itunes and like our entire music collections could be called up in an instant and, and mixed up in any in any way we want you know I'm sure if you did the research, you'd see a lot of people referring to it as a as a mixtape film at yeah. the time, or at least at yeah. least a couple people. Uh-huh. Yeah, um, yeah. So, and and also, would this movie be a hit in 2022 like it was in 2001? I don't know what people. Have, I, I mean, I, I, yeah. is is it actually too far out outside what people are used to seeing that it would that they would be open to it, or what? What is it? Just such a, a irresistible, you know, pop juggernaut that we we'd go for it again 
I'll say this because I don't I don't like the you couldn't make that movie today discussion because I feel like it's, it's a little old. It makes me feel old, <laughs> you know. As often as I feel that feeling, but I don't see its equivalent. You know, I don't I right. don't know. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't see not only you know a groundbreaking musical of, of this sort, but but anything that's that's this far outside the mold playing you know released by a major studio. In the middle of the summer, the beginning yeah. of the summer, as this, as this one was, yeah. at least, uh, to kick off the summer with this, at, you know. At, at least Darren Aronofsky's mother was not a summer movie <laughs> release. <laughs> uh, if you want, I to mean, just... we're kind of about to find out if it would play in twenty twenty two with Elvis, which is, I mean, obviously it's different, but it's really, really similar in a lot of ways, and most uh, apparently in tone and filmmaking approach but yeah it's we're we're recording this like the day it hits theaters so i uh, we don't yet know if audiences will respond how audiences will respond to it but i feel like this new movie is as close as we can get to the hypothetical of what if moulin rouge were released today maybe so uh we'll we'll have to uh weigh in on that uh next week we'll be back in a minute with some feedback During our episode on Jurassic Park, we puzzled over the sequence involving a sick triceratops that Laura Dern's character, Ellie, examines shortly before a storm comes and all hell breaks loose at the park. Now someone has answers for us. Keith. No, I don't have answers, but Charlie in Chicago has some answers. He, he wrote in and said, the mystery of the sick triceratops is addressed in the book and supposedly in a scene in the movie that got filmed but was deleted. Triceratops don't have sufficient teeth to crush the plants they eat, so they would swallow piles of rough stones to help with breaking them up in their stomach. After a few weeks, the stones would smooth out too much and the triceratops would throw them up and swallow new ones. The guy in the movie mentions that the triceratops seemed to get sick every six weeks. When she would scoop up stones, she would unintentionally scoop up the West Indian lilac berries as well. But the berries would be regurgitated with the stones, hence why Ellie doesn't find them in the droppings. The more you know. And now, yeah, now, now, now we know. Yeah, I, I, I will say that we we did get uh, a few people letting us know uh, this this detail that we puzzled over. But uh, Char- Charlie was first and 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 <laughs> gave the, gave the most detail. So so thank you, Charlie. Yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, I don't know what to say. Triceratops. That seems like a pretty uh, unsustainable uh, way of uh, consuming food. Yeah, right? I, I say triceratops. Get it together. Come on. Yeah, come on. Figure figure out a better way to to get to consume your yeah. food. So if if it was filmed and and deleted from the movie, like is that a scene we we want back in the movie? Uh, Does, it, it, it was it was kind of the only dangling thread we talked about. I guess it depends, like if there's more going on in in the scene. But like I, I'm I'm curious what the what the filmed scene uh, was that addressed that. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think it, I think it just becomes one thing too many. But then of course you know you have this question but i don't know is the question that big so much i don't know i don't think you want to lose all the stuff with the triceratops and certainly the uh 
plumbing through poop thing. <laughs> you don't want to miss that either. Or, or the character detail of her tending to the this animal and the and all the stuff about them going. I mean, there's so there are a lot of things that the scene accomplishes, you know, without necessarily answering all the questions we need answers answered about the Triceratops. So, uh, I mean, that's just movies. You gotta gotta cut some stuff <laughs> out, and that that was uh, maybe maybe a painful cut. Uh, but uh, I'd be curious. Uh, to see it, it sounds sounds like uh, my cat does this, right? You, you choose choose <laughs> choose a plant, choose a plant, throws up, you know, eats stuff it's not supposed to. Is she eating stones? <laughs> eats well. I mean, maybe that would help if she had some small <laughs> yeah. rough stones um, to to uh, to swallow. You know, you know, I I notoriously swallow cherry pits, and and this is why. <laughs> wow! <laughs> Don't do that. Genevieve, wait! Oh, wait! You, you, I recall you, you ate an an apple with the core. In, in, at, yeah, you can do it. that. You do that. Yeah. You do that, though. You I, do I don't. That. I, I don't always do it, but it, the core doesn't you it taste the core. especially good. But yeah, you can eat it. I, the core is relative too. I mean, you know, after <laughs> you know, yeah, it's you, relevant you to define... like put a core through and then throw in the garbage. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't eat. I don't eat the apple cores. Throw in the compost, Scott. I, I have Compost. to see if I could, you know. Uh, I mean, we we it's all we watch that movie Swallow. We know what it's all about, you know. You sometimes <laughs> you just gotta eat things to see if you can. All right. Well, so uh, <laughs> on that note, uh, we always appreciate when our listeners share their thoughts and their recommendations and uh, things that they like to ingest uh <laughs> if you feel so inclined we can feature your response on a future episode to reach us you can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net that's it for this episode of the next picture show in our next episode we'll look at elvis baz lerman's bedazzled biopic about the king of rock and roll Look for that episode next Tuesday at your podcatcher of choice. For ad-free versions of the podcast and extra content, find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. You can find us at nextpictureshow.net and on Twitter at nextpicturepod if you want to keep track of when new episodes drop. Until next week, Adam from Film Spotting has demanded that we dump the penniless guitar player we love and take up with the Maharaja. Maharaja.